podcast one production. commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. Shane Jacobson is quite possibly the busiest person in Australian entertainment right now. Stage shows, TV and of course movies. He's a comedian first and foremost. His love of a good laugh is only rivalled by an incredible passion for cars and bikes. Somehow we found a break in his crazy schedule to sit down for a coffee and chat about it. I'm one of those freaks which you and me both have the same disease of which there is no cure uh, other than speed. And that is just we love getting behind a wheel of anything. And it's um, it's true, mate. Driving driving's a hobby. I mean, it's you know, I hear those people out there. You and me don't like these people. Uh, but the ones that say, you know, cars are a necessary evil. There's hundreds of people laying on the ground with sore jaws that have said that to me. And I go, how dare you describe what I consider a love, a passion. It's like having calling a girlfriend ugly, you know. You can't be saying it's a necessary evil. There's nothing evil about them. They're pure joy. They're art. They're a hobby. They're a pleasure. They're, they're a moment away. They're a, you know, they're a f- form of escapism. You grew up in Avondale Heights, I think, northwest Melbourne. Is that right? Now, what were the family cars in those early years? Am I correct in saying sort of Hillmans and things like that? <laughs> It's a head. God, I hate the fact that you know too much. Rusty. <laughs> so we had a we had a Hillman Hunter, which I was so embarrassed about at the time. But it did it did really well back in the day. It did pretty well. London to Sydney. I was going to say yeah. the London to Sydney yeah. it did all right. Um, I mean, having said that, I think Cortinas did all right in one of those ones. And yeah, it was the TC, I think, <laughs> went, went in there and um, did well. And no one ever got a TC Cortina to run well again. But uh, yeah, we had that. There was a there was a Ford. I'm, I'm a out and proud Holden fan. There's no doubt about it. But uh, we had a Ford in the driveway. Um, but Mum also had a Mini. Not the Cooper S, just a Mini. So nothing flash. It was. It was. It, it certainly wasn't the cars parked in our driveway that gave me the thirst um, for motoring. The, the, the truth is, and I've said it a million times, the the car that that twisted my head and uh, and I've never got rid of the Rick neck is an E H Holden, a guy in the, in the neighbourhood. It was the western suburbs. She was pretty rough area. Anyone that had more than three teeth was a tourist. Um, and we, a guy turned up with a candy apple red, I'll, ne- I'll never forget it, it's, it's like, you know, your first love kind of thing. Uh, we, were, we were eating, you know, potato cakes as you do on your BMX, sitting in the in the shopping centre car park and this candy apple red E.H. Holden uh, with um, centerline mags and it had a 400 Chev, I'll never forget, it was a 400 Chev. I never even heard of a 400 Chev then, but pulled into the um, shopping centre car park and stopped outside the fish and chip shop, and that, that was my first love. And I now have an E.H. Holden, but that was when, you know, and it wasn't, my family weren't into cars at all. Um, we're all into music, we're all into acting and comedy and all that kind of stuff, but I'm the only one that's, that's got this virus um, called, you know, the love of cars. We'll get to the E.H. Uh, a little later, but I want to start with your first car, T.E. Cortina. A Ford. You're talking about your love of Holdens, but it was a Ford. Now, they came out in the late 70s. Share the story because you bought it before you even had your licence. I did. I can't believe we've got to talk about this goddamn car. <laughs> it wouldn't be good. If, I, if, you, if you gave me the DeLorean now yes. and said, Shane, where are we going? 
the answer would be back to when I was 18 to get rid of that freaking T.E. Cortina because it's the most embarrassing thing because <laughs> as a car lover, we all know you can't help but go, you know. What was your first car? Look, I got a loan um, and had that thing sitting in the driveway before I had a licence. It was the it was the two litre uh, TE. It was a station wagon. I was I was singing in bands then, and I needed something that had rear space. It wasn't too overpowered, which you know my parents were kind of looking for me to be semi sensible. Four cylinder, not the six. Yeah, that no, was the four. Um, you know, but it had. I used to tell people, you know, when you're a kid, you just any sentence you never checked whether it was true. Yeah. But someone told me, oh, this thing has like a Bathurst quick change four speed, <laughs> and they were just words that someone gave me. There's no way that had it. Yeah. And I used to say, no, it's got the quick change uh, four speed gearbox in it. It didn't. It was just it was just a manual gearbox. I don't even know where they came from, but I was saying that for years. Whatever happened to it? Did you modify it? Because as a young man, yeah, you're inspired by that EH you saw before and, and the engine that was in it and things like that. Did you leave it standard? Did you modify it? And what became of, of the Cortina? So, uh, so there's two parts of that. I didn't do any work to the motor, um, but that was kind of the days of, uh, well, now you'd go into an auto barn of the day or a Repco and you just bought bits. But it was never anything that made the car better. It was, as you know, it was, I got stickers. I had stickers on the back window. There was a surfboard company called Shane, believe it or not, and their logo was on top, down under. Well, that was just too good to refuse. So I had two of those stickers on the back window. But I did little things, like you put a CB in it, but nothing to the car, but all that stuff, you know, and then you save for better seat covers. And it was all these things, and you just kept covering this pig of a thing in lipstick and makeup. <laughs> it was still a pig. So I did nothing to the motor. But what came of it is it got stolen. Someone took it for a joyride and burnt burnt the bejesus out of it. And the police knocked on my door. Like, it was like two in the morning. I woke up and I said, are you, are you the owner of car? Um, beep. God, you remember? it's funny. You remember Regos, don't you? Well, car people do, I think. BPW120. And I always said it, it stood for the boy that people worship 120%. That was how I remembered it. And, uh, and I said, yeah. And uh, they said, where's that car? And I said, well, it should be parked out the front. And they said, well, it's not. They said, as we speak, it is still burning. <laughs> so they, it, it was like in some remote part of the outskirts of Melbourne it had been taken for a drawer. And they, I went and saw it because it was on, out in the middle of nowhere. They gave me the location. And I, nothing's ever been burnt that bad. Nothing. And it, it was, all the glass was melted down onto the floor. There was no, no rubber on the tyres. There was nothing. There's part of the, all the alloy components of the car were, were pulls on the ground. So whoever took that thing hated it as much as I did. <laughs> did you get your licence first go? No, I didn't. God, you're a bastard. Um, <laughs> it was a hard marker, the policeman, I think, for memory, wasn't it? It was, it was a, a driving one of those... So it was done through, I think, the RTA or however it works. Vic Rhodes, you know, they had their yes. licence testers. I got... Um, I was on 99. I was either perfect or 99 out of 100. I'd made no mistake, right? It was like a head turn or I didn't look far enough over my shoulder or something. It was like one point I was on. And I was two blocks from going from finishing the test. And, and nailing it. And, and nailing it, yeah. And the guy said, oh, and like my instructor actually said to me, I can't believe they did that to you. But there's a, a street that every now and then they take you down apparently to fool anyone that's going for their driver's licence because it's a two-way street that becomes a one-way street, but there's no, it's not marked that clearly. And what happened was I went down the um, one-way component of it, which is where they go down, and then halfway through it's which is the two-way. And all it was was I was centred of the road because all the cars are facing one way, but my tyre, as I spotted it, I went, oh, hang on, it turns the two, two lanes here. I veered over a bit, but my right hand 
front tyre touched the white line in the middle of the road and the driving inspector said that actually on paper constitutes as heading towards oncoming traffic even though there was nothing on the road. An immediate fail. Wow. And I think my instructor said that he hated the fact you were driving that well. I think he was just looking to... Bring you. I, apparently I looked a bit confident and because uh, I used to drive a bit and I still remember... I still remember absolutely allegedly that I got home so angry and my parents went home that I went and took that cool dinner for a drive around <laughs> the streets anyway. I was so angry I just took the car for a drive anyway. So therapy's working, you've gotten over the fail, have you? Oh, look, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm in counselling now and they reckon I'm only two years shy of being over that moment. You wrote about the long road to overnight success. You mentioned the singing before, you mentioned about the fact that you know you were on stage as a, as a youngster and your love of, of comedy. Is it true, mate, you worked in pyrotechnics for a time and even at a Dire Straits concert, is that correct? Yeah, worked for, wow, back in the 80s, I got it. The first one I did was the Debbie Gibson Electric Youth Tour. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I did Dire Straits, I did Guns N' Roses, Bon Jovi, uh, yeah, you name it, ACDC worked for all of them. I did pyro for probably 13 years, just, you know, got paid to blow things up. But, um yeah, Dire Straits, that would have been about 86, I suppose. But, yeah, I just, I, you know, I just ran around just blowing stuff up. and you know. But I'd also do car events too. I got to do stuff like uh, the Premier Speedway in Warnable. You know, that was the other thing is it got me to these great events. I mean, there was all the rock concerts, which was great. I got to still remember bringing home two garbage bags full of teddy bears from a poison concert to give to my little sister. And then I remember going into my room to show, show my old man the bras and underpants <laughs> that got thrown onto the same stage, which all had stapled to them or written on them in text that their phone number. I thought that was the weirdest thing ever, going, I've got a whole bunch, because they, they used to just sweep them off the stage and just put them in bags to throw them out. And I only did it once, I brought it home just to, to impress my little sister at the time. Older sister was too old, but yeah, she would have got, you know, a hundred teddy bears. Um, but then there, there was this whole bag of underpants going, have a go that, and tip them out. He said, let's throw them in the bin, eh? What a combo, mate. A comedian who loves going fast access to crackers and explosives. I mean, that is just your submission to Top Gear Australia right there, isn't it? Well, isn't it funny? So when when the Top Gear thing happened, I didn't know I was being asked, really, to host the show. I got told that they were doing Top, Top Gear Australia and it had been done, you know, Steve Pizzotti, who's, who's a great mate of mine. Both of ours. Ours, ours indeed. And um, Piz had already done the version on, on SBS. And Channel 9 were taking it over, and I knew some people there, and they said, look, you know, we've, we've got Top Gear's coming to 9 now. And they were telling me they'd been overseas. And I honestly thought that meant it had been decided, people were hosting it, and they wanted to talk to me about being on the show. And I just assumed it was... Like a guest. Well, slips in a reason, star in a reasonably priced car. Mm. I honestly, not for one moment, thought I was going to be hosting this thing. And anyway, I got asked to, to, to meet Peter Abbott, who was the EP of it, and... Maybe I'm an idiot, but anyway, I kind of went to this meeting and I thought it would be great to host it, but I just thought they were just looking to get the right people to be on as guests because they need to make a big splash on Channel 9 and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and obviously trying to, you know, be the Rolling Stones cover band when the Rolling Stones are still on tour, which is what being the host of Top Gear is like when, you know, Top Gear, when Jez and the boys are still going with the real Top Gear, so to speak, the English version. So anyway, I get there and uh, I turn up at the time. I had a six-litre V8 Calais that was my, my, my daily drive and pulled up right outside the cafe and I was running a bit late, so I think I pulled in pretty quick, pit stop style, and uh, and jumped out of the car and he said, uh, he said, so you like cars then and you like to go quick? And we started chatting. We immediately got chatting about cars and he said, so, um, you know, what sort of cars do you like? And we just started chatting and he said, you know, do you... 
like old cars. I said, well, I like going quick, but I like old cars. And, you know, I've done a bit of amateur rally stuff. And I started going through my driving. Anyway, before you know it, at the end of the meeting, he said, look, we'd really love to talk to you about hosting the show. And I wasn't really that sure until then. It was ridiculous. But um, you know, I just thought it was one of the guys. However, I missed that point. So next thing you know, we're talking about me hosting it and uh, and of course dare I say it, you know it went on to be that I hosted it for a couple of years you know we'll talk more about some of the crazy fun stuff that you did because I mean it's such a great uh, chapter what I want to sort of come back to for a moment is what you listen to when you drive are you uh, you know do you try and switch off is it music are you doing stuff that helps you, uh, you know, learn your lines and practice what do you do when you drive yeah it's music for the most part I, uh, I've almost entered that phase of life where it's AM radio which I didn't think would happen <laughs> almost <laughs> and every now and then one three one eight seven three. Let's go to Shane. Hello. <laughs> I know it's shocking. We got Margaret from Moody Palms on the phone. Go ahead, Margaret. But every now and then, I found myself dropping across to AM. Now, look, I've I've shaved that off, um, so that's gone for the moment. It is music, and uh, it's funny because um, if I'm riding a bike, if I'm, I'm I've got an Indian Roadmaster, and I, I'm an ambassador for Indian motorcycles, so I've got and I get the joy of riding. You know, pretty much any bike that's in the paddock and I've got a roadmaster at the moment. The truth is whenever I'm riding, it's ACDC or Foo Fighters and I can't get it out of my head. It feels weird. You know, For some people, they say, oh, they always have to wake up and have a cigarette and a coffee. Well, my version of that is if I'm on a motorbike, I have to be listening to ACDC or the Foo Fighters. So they are permanently in my ear when I ride. And in the car, look, it is music, mate, for the most part of these. And I do... I do love driving, and uh, as I said at the top of the interview, but um, I also, for me, it is it is a pleasure, and it's uh, and part of that pleasure is having music, having a soundtrack playing in your mind, and you know, and cruising down the road because I do, I do, you know, I can vague out in a car, I really can. I'm, I'm car on a bike, though, can you? Not at all. That's the thing. It's funny. I heard Ross Noble uh, being interviewed by Andrew Denton recently, saying, you know, Andrew Denton saying, I don't, I don't like motorbikes and. What is it about motorbikes that you like? And Ross Noble said to him, well, I've got a question for you. What is it about motorbikes that you don't? Mm-hmm. Um, and Denton said that he, when he was a kid, he had a go at one and rid, ridden straight into a tree. And Ross said, well, here's the thing. And him and me are probably similar. And I'm stealing his words. Well, more to the point, I'm agreeing with his sentiment, which is that I do have a busy mind. There's no doubt about it. My brain spins at a million miles an hour. And, and I'm kind of not happy unless it's doing that in a weird way. Um, like you know, the idea of having some time off in my mind is kind of that's not how my mind works. So therefore, I don't, I'm not looking for time off. I'm looking for things to think about and ideas to solve and problems to solve. But on a motorbike, you're thrust, you're forced into a situation where you have to focus. And but there's, it's a beautiful handshake or marriage, if you will, that you have to focus, but you want to. And every, there's nothing. I mean, on a long ride, you can start to do what you do in a car. But for the most part. If you're doing it right, you are observing, which you're supposed to do in anything on the road, but you are looking further ahead. You're looking through the corners, of course, which you're supposed to, but you really don't let that stuff go when you're on a bike. But you're also looking at bumps in the road and everything else. But it's, it sounds busy, but it's not. You're just concentrating on the ride, but you're, you're not in the shell of a car. You're sitting on the roof of one. I mean, it's fantastic, and there's nothing... You know, where you've come to, for us to catch up today and have lunch, mate. You know, as you can see, we're in the Macedon Ranges in Victoria, and it's beautiful around here. And when you're when you're sitting on a bike, you know, you're being it's like having God's hand just slowly or a magic carpet just deliver you through the mountain ranges. Like it's fantastic. So it does uh, your brain 
doesn't want to for a moment think of anything other than the joy of riding. In a car, it can be a little bit of an office sometimes, whereas on a bike that doesn't happen. So, so that's my love of, of riding. But but I do going back to it. I do I do listen to a lot of music in cars and on bikes definitely. Invariably, mate, in the early years of what is a very hard business that you're you're now in, trying to make ends meet, etc. That often means you're scraping money together, driving crappy cars. What were some of the cars in the early days that you that you drove? Maybe like the Cortina you regretted driving. Oh, look, the tri- I have a go at it. I think it's pride that makes me have a go at it. But at the time, I loved it. It was a yeah. set of wheels. Yeah. Um, plus, I've mentioned this before, but you know, it did. I could put a mattress in the back, and as we know, and I've, I wrote it. And there was a book called "It Happened in a Hole," and I wrote in there that back in the day when we were doing those things that. And this is not to cover up the embarrassment of, of having cars, but when we were 18, we all remember that moment when you, you know, in my day, had to get, be 18 to get your licence, as we both know. And, you know, once you got it, they weren't just a car then, especially I had mates with panel vans. So we would, you know, go down the surf, surf coast of Victoria and, because it's different now, cars, you know, the reliability, I've written about this too, but, you know, the reliability of cars has lost their personality, you know. Yes. With the, the fact you had to hold your tongue out to your left to get the car to start and <laughs> we'd all do a dashboard dance. It was an ad lib I did in the film Oddball. I did a film called Oddball, which was about these dogs that save these penguins. And in, in one of the takes, the car wouldn't start, the truck wouldn't start. They had this old sort of F-150. It actually had a Cummins diesel motor in it. But but this thing, the starter motor, had to work its ass off to get this thing churned over. And and it, it wouldn't go, the starter motor. <laughs> and I, I said, put your tongue out to the left, to the young girl that's in the passenger seat, and tried it again. <laughs> Yeah, to no avail. So, no, go to the right. <laughs> no, it wouldn't start. And it ended up in the film. But this happened. This happened. It was an ad lib. And I said, poke your tongue out forward. <laughs> I said, a little bit further. Broom, she fired. And I said, there you go. Out and forward's the way she starts. And that, and they kept it in the movie. And when they when they yelled, car, they're all laughing, saying, what the hell was that? Love that, mate. And, and she said, what was that thing about the tongue? And I said, well, there's an old expression, when the car wouldn't start, someone would say, you're not holding your tongue right. Because as you know, you go, oh, your tongue, like when you're thinking, a lot of guys when they're trying to concentrate or screw something in, it's a little bit hard to screw in, your tongue comes out. I don't know why. But, uh, but, but that, you know, it's the reliability of cars, as I say, that I think have lost their personality. You know, they all had names. One of our cars didn't start the other day. My kids couldn't believe it. They could not believe. It just doesn't happen now. No. And, and, and so, going back to the thing about cars, you know, I had a Mazda 303 and, you know, the, the Cortina to, 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 you know, answer your question. But they were, they got us to a location. So, they weren't just transport. They were like a nightclub because everyone would get in and someone would go, this is the, I've made up a tape. I've made a tape for the trip. Mm-hmm. So, it became, then became a venue. It became transport. It became a nightclub. And then, you know, let's be honest, there were your mates in the back that put an esky on the back seat. For them, it became a bar on wheels. Yeah. And then we'd get to the beach and then they, my mates would back up and it was the, it was the one time that Ford or Holden, Valiant, didn't matter. If it was a panel van, they could all back up and hold hands. They were allowed to be at that party together. You know, it wasn't like rivalling bike gangs. I mean, they could definitely be backed up to the same fire pit. And at that point, they became the venue. Like I say, they became the, the, the disco system. They became the hotel or motel. Um, you know, there'd be mates pulling a barbecue at the back of one. It became the, the restaurant. Like, it was a, it was an occasion. So that was the thing I loved about Danny's. It's funny, when I look back on it now as a, as a car lover, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I had a Mazda 303, but I'd come back from Europe. I had no money and $35,000 in debt. And my mate's sister had this car that she, she was going to let go of for 800 bucks well 
I had 750 bucks and a mate owed me 50 bucks from before I'd left to go overseas the year before I rang him and said you got that 50 he said I got 45 I said I'll take it and then went around and said and I found another few coins in, in my top drawer and I paid $800 cash and I was mobile again you know but that's what I loved about back then was no, you know, no one had the money. I, I, you know, I came from the western suburbs, and you know, we always joked we were so poor we couldn't even afford to pay attention. <laughs> in fact, my old man had us convinced at one point we were sponsored by a family in Peru, so, <laughs> so we had no money. But, but if you could get in a car, if you had a car, if you had a, if you had three pedals in front of you and a wheel in your hands, you were you were kicking goals. You know, it was the keys, pardon the pun, to to an experience. And there are things for people at your age and, and mine that are still like in your mind those experiences those great experiences growing up let's go to Top Gear you mentioned before working with Steve Bizzardi you guys were were nuts you nearly got eaten by lions in the world's smallest car for that story in the UK what was your first reaction when they pitched that to you and give us some more details on the yard well it it, it all sounded okay, but it's that thing where when you're in the hands of supposed experts or professionals, you just, you're supposed to feel calm. I mean, which still weeds me out. When you go to the show, when you go to the Ecker or a Royal Melbourne show or whatever your, you know, your annual big fair is, we all get on those roller coasters or we get on the, you know, the whatever it may be, the Mad Mouse or whatever the ride is, you know what I mean, the pirate ship, and you just kind of go, well, they know what they're doing, which is ironic because you're looking at some guy stoned out of his mind, covered in tattoos with a pack of Winnie Blues shoved up under his sleeve going, yeah, no, he's done all the safety checks on this. Bullshit he has. But we kind of just get there and go, well, they wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be open if it wasn't Ryan. Well, this was an open-range zoo, and there was this guy that was... That kind of was the guy we had to deal with, and I, I think he was the manager or he ran the zoo. And I still remember the thing that kind of lulled us into this false sense of security was he had that voice, that English voice, and it's that voice that narrated every documentary on the ABC through the 50s, 60s and 70s, whether it was on radio or TV or whatever. Um, and it was that 1947, a year to remember, this man had this voice. He had us convinced the lions are fine. And he kept telling us stories about, I have shot lions and hunted in Africa. And the more I heard his voice, I'm like, well, this guy's on top of everything, right? He had us convinced he shakes hands with lions, dines with them, wines with them. Anyway, he didn't. Um, so that you're like, we're going to go in there and... We've got to take these cars through the line enclosure. Here's the thing. We went through, we went through in normal cars, right? Petrol, you know, naturally aspirated cars, smell like fuel, they're old things. Um, and the lines took no interest at all. None. Zero. In fact, they actually hung some raw meat off my car. I'll, I'll tell you, this, this producers hung some meat and threw some blood on the outside of my car to make sure they'd get some attention. And a few came over and ate a bit of meat, but I really didn't care. Then we come out of that thing, and that's when the Peel 50s turn up, smallest you know, you know smallest car in the world. Now, the original ones were made of steel. These things were fiberglass. They, they had perspex windows, no locks on the doors, and... It, the, the seat is just off the ground by a few inches. It's like if you hacked the legs off a plastic school chair and then left two, two inches of legs, that's what you're sitting on. So I'm all bent over like a dog trying to root a cricket ball just to get in the thing. And then in we go. Now, these were electric. They didn't smell of fuel. They were small. There was three of them. They were identical in size and red in colour. So 
we at that point learnt that the lions thought it was three predators or something on approach. It just, the game changed instantly. And I remember saying at the start to this man, I think his name was Dale, and I said, so is there any guns or anything here if something goes wrong? And he said, we won't be shooting any of the staff here. <laughs> and I went, oh my God, he thinks the lions are on staff. But I got his point. He was right. We're the visitors. The lions work here. So, no. So he said, but I've got a wooden stick. And I remember thinking, well, God, where's he going to shove that? I think, God, he'd have to get pretty close to make that stop a lion from eating a human. (laughs) Even then, they may not be interested. But, yeah, at that point, the lions took great interest. And, look, it was... That... that it was, kind of, it was kind of funny. It was, it was scary, but it was funny. We then went into the um, orangutan, uh, the, the chimp enclosure. They were the, what were they think, the baboons. And they started eating bits off the car. And one of them, I famously told a story, which is the truth. There was one at my left window that put its hand on the door handle. They don't have locks on them. And this thing looked angry, right? And it was really curious. So I had to hold the door handle on the inside but not look down at the handle because they're smart. It would have triggered them onto something. I had one on the bonnet of this car with its ass. And I don't know if you've seen them. I've always described it as it looks like Bert Newton eating a jam donut, right? Pressed up against the window giving me its critique, so it's obviously seen some of my earlier work and didn't like it. And then there was one out my right window, and I've always had to be careful about how I describe this because children could be listening, but the one out my right window, window liked me a lot and had a visual display of how much he liked me and was busy with it. <laughs> and I'm like, if this thing on my left-hand side gets this door open, I'm in trouble because the one on the right's got an idea. The one on the left wants to fight me, and I don't know what the one on the front window wants to do, but I don't I want to be a part of it. So we escaped that and then we went in with the rhinos and I don't know if you've spoken, spoken to Piers but Steve Pizzardi nearly died that day and there was nothing anyone could do about it. The rhinos was far more terrifying than lions because we spooked a mother because she had young and that thing stood in front of us and they and they were swearing at that point. This guy who was like, it's all fine. He, was, he started screaming in the two ways saying, don't effing move. And there's nothing they could do. They couldn't bring cars in between us and so we had to sit in these plastic buckets with a Perspex window. No way. And a remote control car motor underneath us, of which the batteries were running low at this point because we'd been doing the whole safari thing. And we had to sit there and just wait to see whether the rhino decided she was going to kill us or not. And Piz was in the firing line. She was going to come through a lot of us. So that was without a doubt the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. Ever. I mean, and I've had cars, you know, lose traction around corners when I've, you know, had a young head on young shoulders in a quick car and all that sort of stuff. Nothing scared me more than those rhinos. The Top Gear guys, I've gone on to the Grand Tour now, I know, but Clarkson, Hammond and May, I asked Steve about this in, a, in an earlier episode. They are proper enthusiasts, mate, in every sense of the word. They are. And what, what happens on camera, well, well, I'll explain it this way. What happens off camera with them is exactly what happens on camera, which is they talk about cars. I'm not saying they live their life every minute of it talking about cars. Like You can go out to dinner and, and a car won't get mentioned. But if a car comes up in conversation, they will genuinely have an opinion and they may agree or they may differ. And once they differ, the comedy begins. But it's, it's not put on. Like, if, you know, as soon as they say blah, 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 you know, Range Rover or something, you know, you know, Richard will go, oh, here we go. And that just means Jeremy's about to talk about how great it is, even though, you know, the reliability is not that great. And on they go. And it does. It turns into... It's an opinion piece, but it's a comedy piece. But they are passionate. But it's three mates wanting to dig at each other. But it's backed with fact and knowledge. So it is. It is the perfect recipe, and and it's it's pretty hard to replicate because they're not racing drivers, and they'll tell you they're journalists, they're motoring enthusiasts and journalists. 
that aren't saying they're racing drivers. And but they have a love of cars and they love the art of it, but they come from three completely different angles. They really do, you know. Um, and James is a motorbike guy. Jeremy hates them. Like, hates them. Like, they, they're they different, but they're the same. And You know what I mean? It's sweet and sour, but it's, you know... Great combo, all, and it works, mate. So. It, well, look, it works every time, and, it, and it's... Um, and, look, I, you know, I now know them very well. I think it's fair enough I can call them mates. I mean, my, my book called Revhead, My Life as a Motoring Tragic, um, you know, he wrote the comment on the front of the book for me, you know, and he, he's... You know, you can imagine he gets asked a million times by people to do that and says no to all of them. He's, he's, he's been a, a great mate to me, and he said, of course, mate, and provided the quote for the front of my book, which says if you read one book this year it better be one of mine but if you read two maybe read Shane's <laughs> <laughs> you drove here for this catch up today in something a little special you treated yourself very recently tell me about the new ute so uh noisy q that's her rego and that's that's what the hq's called so uh yeah i've got a it's a hq ute um it's got the uh stady the statesman front end um, it was built by a guy called Luke up in uh, up in Cairns. He's a mechanic. I don't know him, but I saw it online. And I'm still the guy that goes to a servo and grabs magazines just for you know cars that are for sale. Anything, I, I still buy them. That's I think the the only reason they're still in print is because of me. <laughs> I'm aware there's a thing called the internet, um, <laughs> but and I do. I look through car sales and all that sort of thing. I just I just browse. Second hand cars for sale. I just like it. It's my thing, you know. And a lot, you know, a lot of car guys do, you know, just to see what stuff's fetching and what's out there. And, you know, I kind of I like getting a sense of when stuff becomes less available. You know, you sort of watch price. We've all been there and watch the, you know, HOs, you know, go up in value. And it's kind of, I don't know, it's like some people watch the stock market, I watch cars, you know, and the value of them. And uh, anyway, this this ute turned up and I, I no thought, I mean, I already, I already, already got two utes on my farm. I don't need a ute. I've got a Land Cruiser and a Holden Rodeo on the farm and a four-wheel bike which has a ute on the back and a you know Polaris six-seater with a ute on the back. So I don't need a ute. And I've got three trailers, for Christ's sake. So, um, but it looks beautiful, mate. White, 308. Yeah. What's been done to it? So he spent 20 years getting it to the way he wanted it. And he was a Holden purist, this guy. And he said he wanted to build a HQ ute the way that he thought HSV would have done it if they were around in the day. And I, and, and, and I reckon he's got it pretty well right. He's got a black pinstripe decal down the side that he kind of come up with himself and it looks great. It's a VT308, so he's a purist, so it's the last of the GM motors. So he's got a, yeah, the VT308, it's got a, a BM Turbo 400 shifter in it, which is, you know, built to cope with, I think it's sort of nine or 950 horsepower. Okay. So I've got one of those and that does its job pretty nicely. He took injection off it and put Carby back on it because he wanted to, he's a bit of a purist. Police, what other? Um, no, it's uh, it's not Holly's, and because uh, I j- it, it, it's just been swapped over, and now you've got me this. Sorry, <laughs> now you've got me because he's just he, he swapped them over. I think it had Holly's on it. Weathers, no, no, no. no. Um, no, he put the Holly's. The, there are Holly's on it now. Yeah. Okay. So, um, God, I have to think then because it's been swapped and come back. It's got a true track system to stop axle tramp because the thing's ready to drag. Yeah. Um, you know, it's got the big oversized taco on the on the floor there, ready to you know shift it to six eight in first gear and. So does that mean that Shane Jacobson turns up, knocks at the door, you know, 
Hello, I'm here to look at your car. Or did you go? You said someone... It was in Cairns, you it said. It was in Cairns. Right? No, we did a lot. Believe it or not, the photos look great in the photos and it sounds stupid, but I kind of trusted the guy. We had a lot of chats um, and he knew the car back to front. I mean, every bolt and every nut. I reckon it's pretty hard to fake that stuff. I mean, you know, just, but I, you know he knew who I was. He knew... I didn't say I'm Shane Jacobson. I said, I mean, I'm Shane. Anyway. Yeah. It was about two minutes into it. He said, you're Shane Jacobson, I am. He said, I know that voice anywhere. You know, we spoke a fair bit about it and, and again, I, I don't think... And he's a, he's a car enthusiast um, and a whole nut and uh, the detail he had was unbelievable you know and it was a reluctant sale for him you know he, he'd been through a breakup and stuff and he just you know he had to sort some stuff out and know where to store it and, and I think he needed the money so um, you know I was the receiver of you know he, he had bad news and I had great news as a result so um, but yeah look it's you know Mickey Thompson's on the back end of it and centerline welds that have been powder coated black and she's just she's just a piece of art and I love it and uh, she makes a bit of noise custom three inch stainless steel twin exhaust that drop out behind the back wheels and yeah she's she's a, she's a good thing although he tells me I can't call it a girl it's he he keeps saying you cannot say she's a good thing he's a good thing <laughs> so I've, I've got to call it a boy <laughs> this is Greg Rust and you're listening to Rusty's Garage in this series I speak to the most passionate automotive designers collectors riders and drivers I know Matt Hall is not a driver he's not a rider he's not a designer either in fact he's not even living his life going flat out on terra firma he prefers the skies there was one time I was uh, I was running on the deck in an exercise in an F15 and I was doing about 750 knots at uh, 100 foot off the ground. So we're looking at around about you know 1300 kilometres an hour, about 100 feet, um, in the middle of the desert, like near Area 51. And um, my fuel flow at the time was 110,000 pounds of fuel per engine. So 220,000 pounds of fuel an hour going out the back end. So yeah, yeah do the maths on that. Listen to the full episode with former Top Gun and now Red Bull air racer Matt Hall here on Rusty's Garage. Knock, also referred to as detonation. This happens when leftover fuel air mixture in an engine's combustion chamber randomly explodes sometime after the spark plug is fired. Well, that's the scariest thing I've ever heard of. The ute is one part of a Holden collection that you are building shall we say let's talk EH first because I know you have a bit of a bit of a soft spot for that car uh, one of my best mates mums had one when we were we were growing up didn't have spats like yours or the fender the fender skirts over the rear tires uh, tell us more about it manual hydromatic what is it so when I got it uh, it was literally the daily drive of of an oldish lady, her husband just said, it's just time to get her in a car with airbags, you know, just for safety. And she said, you know, heater would be nice and so would an air conditioner. I'm like, yeah, well, they have those in cars now. <laughs> so when I got it, uh, it had an Aussie four-speed on the floor. It's the 179 Special. It had the spats on it, the Venetians in the back window. Paint job needed a bit of work, but she was straight. I'm not the greatest at building a car and, you know, I've got, I've got, a, I've got mates who do that. So I've got a mate who does hot rod work and he only does steel work. He doesn't do fiberglass on hot rods, which I have no problem if people do that. But, you know, he doesn't deal with bog. Um, he just deals with cars, so to speak. And so I took him along and he crawled under it and he got up and he said, well, if you don't buy it, I will. <laughs> and that was what he said. And I went, OK, well, I'm definitely buying this thing. Anyway, so yeah, but it had an Aussie four-speed on the floor. It's the 179 Special, but it's got the 186 red motor in it. Nothing done to it, but um, it's actually still got the pea shooter exhaust and still does to this very day. Wow. And I always thought I'd do it up, but I got this thing and it was so, it was so rigid. It's been dropped an inch, which looks great. So 
what I've done is I've got it back in the tree, three in the tree, without synchros in the first and all that, just to get it back to original. I had to get the front seat reupholstered so it's bench in the front. And um, I've just kept it all original. She still drums all around. Yeah, it's, as I say, four idiots, four idiots in a band room, four drummers all around. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, so I've got to, you know, make a phone call to the streets ahead to say I'm coming. Let me know if, it's, <laughs> if the light looks red or green because I'll have to put the brakes on now. But, but that's the joy of it, you know. I've got to be careful because <laughs> there's a mountain behind us as we can both see out the restaurant window here. And if I, I've driven it over there and coming down after a while, you're on the brakes the whole way. And I'm like, I wonder how much time I've got left before the brakes go and we're done. <laughs> I wonder if that moment is when I get to the flat down the bottom. So I, I do drive around the mountain up here with it, not over it too much. But uh, I might have to one day consider putting some discs on the front, but I bet I don't. <laughs> In addition to the ute and the EH is a Kingswood. We had one like yours in the family, very similar, in fact, to the one that you and Hoags had in, in Charlie and Boots. My grandfather, Stanley Cecil Percival, owned it. It was kind of Granny Smith apple. I'm not actually sure of the Holden colour. It might have been Lena Mint or something. I can't remember what the thing is. But yours, if I'm not wrong, actually had a starring role in the movie. Was it the same car? Yeah, it is. So, the, I, I mean, uh, Hoags, uh, Paul Hogan did a film uh, called Charlie and Boots. And me, me and Paul are still mates. We've, we've done a few... Pro- he's just done another film with me recently. So at the end of the film, it took three... So it's a HJ, Kingswood, six-cylinder 202 auto, and it's uh, it took three cars to make the film. So we had the one that I've got. It's the uh, the second unit car. Well, we, we both used it. We, me and Paul definitely drove in it. But they had... Um, there's one that has no motor, no wheels, nothing. It's bolted to a low-rider truck. <laughs> and when they've got to do shots of us inside the car talking, they've got to have cameras on the window and lights. And So that's actually strapped to a low-loader or bolted to a low-loader. Um, and you'll see that driving down a, a road with the crew and lighting and stuff all over it. It's like a city on the back of a truck. So that one was just a shell. But then there was two cars to make the film. And they'd use one for... If they're doing helicopter shots, they might have, um, you know, that being driven down a freeway from a helicopter following that. And then they might, you know, at the same time, that'll be a second camera filming that while me and Paul are pulling up on the side of roads to do another scene. So there was three, two cars and a body. And this one, the one that I took, was the straightest, that was the neatest out of them. And oddly, what they have to do is... um, it sounds mad, but it's what they have to do. They've got continuities a thing in film. Everything has to look the same. If there was a scratch or a scuff on one car and there wasn't that on the other one, they had to scratch that car or scuff that to look like the other one. So the one I've got was the one that actually hadn't had the damage to it, but they had to kind of fake it a bit and scuff the paintwork and, you know, dull it a bit for authenticity, yeah, to make them match, to make them a set of twins, you know. So I took the straightest one. Now, the thing was, I'm a HQ, I love HQs. HJ was never, you know, WBs, there's a whole bunch. There's a few that I love and a few like EJ I don't like, EH I love. HJ's all right, HQ I love. You know, horses for courses, but this thing was so straight. And I said to the producers and the director at the time, they're all mates of mine, and I said, What are you going to do with these? And I said, I don't know, I want to sell them at the end. I went, God, you know what? Some some kid's going to buy this thing, and it's it's rigid edge. They're going to drop a V8 and they're going to, you know, give it facial tattoos and lipstick or give it a short skirt and. And they're going to put around a tree. Say, it's going to kill me because this God, this thing's straight. And they said, "Well, do you want it?" And I said, "Yes, 
yes, rather than have this thing destroyed, I'm going to take it. And now, of course, I love it. So I had the whole thing restored. Um, they In the film, we had Commodore bucket seats in the front. I ripped that out and put it back to bench. Um, got the carbons redone and got it all repainted. Phil Monday, uh, who people from the V8 supercar world would know, um, Phil had the whole thing re-sprayed for me. Phil actually did the EH and did the HJ for me. And, uh, yeah, that now lives at the Hold Museum in Echuca. Um, which uh, Bill used to run that place. It's been sold. There's a, a couple of brothers that own the Holden Museum in Echuca now, which is a great place, if, if, if whether you're a Holden fan or whether you're just a car lover. It's, it's, either way, it's worth a visit. But in the film, Charlie and Boots, we actually visit the Holden Museum in the film. And just one day I just thought, you know, it, it's too good a story not to do this. I rang the Holden Museum and said, look, Shane Jacobson, and I think he thought I was joking at the start, and he said, oh, actually, it is really you. And I said, yeah. And I said, I remember you there, Bill. He said, yeah. And I said, the King's that we drove in the film I own that now I've had it restored would you like it to be in the museum he said you kid me he said I'd love it and it's lived there for oh it'd be four years now um, and it's still there today was it nice to do a movie that kind of blended a road trip working with a legend and it's kind of brought it all together in some respects well it's the thing is I've said at one point there's a story I always tell one of my favourite moments filming it we were in Echuca again ironically where the car now lives um, well, it is temporarily housed. Of course, it'll come home at some point. We were driving down my most Australian moment in my life, which goes to answering your question. Like, it is fantastic. It's a road trip movie, and me and Paul Hogan, you know, in a Kingswood, it's going all right, and travelling out back Australia. We were going through a chuka. I'm in the driver's seat. We're in the Kingswood. Paul Hogan's in the passenger seat and we have to do one last shot before the sun goes down. We're losing light and I had to drive the camera crew on a really long lens. Normally you're surrounded by the cameras and crew and it's pretty obvious there's a film going on but for this one shot they needed us driving down the main drag of a Echuca and on this really long lens. So when we take off to, away from the safety, if you will, of the camera crew, we're actually just out on a road and they want us to go right down to the end of the main thing and do a U-turn. So we, we depart the, the film crew and there's a two-way radio on the passengers in between me and Paul. So we drive off. There's only, at that point, there's only a couple of sets of lights in a Chuka, I think, and we copped, we copped one of them. So we're sitting at a set of lights, no camera crew around us, with me, as I said, in the driver's seat and Paul in the passenger seat and this old lady, and I, I tell the story the same every time, told it a few times because I'll never forget it. And me and Paul both lament the same thing. We, this old couple pull up in a car beside us, right? We're in the left-hand lane, they're in the right-hand lane. They pull up beside us. The old lady sort of looks across and does what people do in the country, which is a bit of a nod, just, there you go, you know. A bit of a nod, and then she looks back forward again, and then her brain and her eyes have a little chat about what they just saw. <laughs> and then she slowly turns around and looks back at us again. And then... While she's looking at us, we nod again. And her, I don't know what her name is, but I know, I still remember her husband's name was Doug because while looking at us, she went, Doug, Doug. <laughs> and he yelled at, What? <laughs> he, she said, Bloody Kenny and Crocodile Dundee are in the bloody car next to us. <laughs> it was just my favourite moment. Me and Paul still laugh about it because. We, then the lights turn green and as that's happening the two way radio sparks up the director's saying come on guys get down there we're running out of sunlight here we need this shot you know so we take off before old Dougie gets to spot us you know and we still love the fact that at some point you know she, he would have thought she was mad in saying that there was you know Kenny and 
Paul Hogan, Crocodile Dundee, in a Kingswood in the main street of Echuca. Because there, there's no one knew they were there. So he would have thought she'd lost, you know, oh, Maud, I assume her name would have been. <laughs> Margaret's lost her mind. But, you know, eight months later when it came out of the pictures, she would have said, I bloody told you that was them. So, it was, you know, of all the things, to so go back to your question that sparked that, was it was fantastic. A road trip movie with me and Paul in, in a Kingswood. It, I, I would do that with, if it wasn't for kids. If a mate said to me, hey, what do you say we go from the bottom of Australia to the top in an old Kingswood, I'd go, shit, yeah. Let alone throw Paul Hogan in the mix. So I would have done that for a holiday, let alone a job, you know. You mentioned Kenny there a moment ago in the in the answer. You've had a stellar career, mate, and I know that there are many more great chapters still to, still to come. But how pivotal, when you look at life now for Shane Jacobson and, and the ability to indulge yourself with a, with a couple of good cars and bikes and things like that, how pivotal... Is Kenny in all of that? Oh, instrumental. It's you know, it's the wheel nuts without them, the tires. You know, the wheels don't stand. It's the motor. It's the gearbox of my career. Mm. It's the windscreen. It's the roadworthy. It's the air in the tires. It's the fuel in the lines. Like it's, it's all of it because um, it, it's it's what opened the door. Look at this. It's hailing outside. Here we are having a chat as we stand here. Hailstones swamping us. Look at this. Welcome to the hills. It's uh, but yeah. Look, it, with, without it. I wouldn't have a career. Well, I'd have a career, of course, of some sort, and it would be in entertainment because I was doing comedy and doing voiceovers and doing radio and acting. You know, I was in TV. I mean, you know, we could go back. You can go back and watch TV commercials where people will go, oh, that was you, you know. So I was in the game, but, I mean, it catapulted my career and it gave me the full-time job of acting, you know. Acting... Me and Steve Pizzardi, again, as you know, a great mate of both of ours, we, we, the amount of times we've compared acting, I can't help but compare it to being a race driver. That It doesn't matter if you're good. There's a whole lot of luck and opportunity. Um, a whole lot of ducks have to be in a row to make it work. And on every any given day, you can get pipped. You can get pipped at a corner or wiped out the corner before. And in acting, you can have someone walk in and believe it or not, you may be perfect for the role, but the director just wanted brown eyes, had a vision in their eyes of brown eyes, and I got blue, so I'm out. And it, it, it doesn't, it, sometimes it's actually not so much about your ability, it's about how you go on the day. An audition, I mean, seriously, that's like coming off the start line, you know, got a, you know, got a great got a great launch. I mean, you know, the throttle position, the difference between a good and a bad takeoff on a throttle, I mean, what is it? Is it a mill? Have they measured it? Yeah. I mean, it's just so many things. It's tired temperatures, it's all that kind of stuff. And you're in control of all that. You're supposed to be the master of all that. But, man, sometimes stuff can get you distracted, you know what I mean? And that's what happens in an audition, you know? The day before, you could be fantastic. Like, the day after, all of a sudden, you're off pitch. And you make one small mistake, and all of a sudden, that's on your mind, and... And the same with acting. You do one line battle, you, you don't think you're convincing in one thing and you're starting to think about that. So that's like setting yourself up, you know, you get through a corner, you've missed the apex. Well, as we know, it doesn't mean you've missed the next apex, but if you spend too long banging on about that in your head, you will miss the next apex. And acting, acting's kind of like that. And, and it's, they're so different but so similar. So Kenny, you know, I got put in a great car and we were surrounded by a fantastic crew and it just and people and people people enjoyed it you know so they're the things we got it made and that can be impossible in this country it was an Australian film um, 
and you know quite often they're not well supported and people loved it that was a dream come true so not only is it is it the thing that launched my career you know because doors that used to slam in my face were then held open you know and so that was that was amazing but not only that it's the most special thing everyone says what's the favourite thing you've ever done and me and my brother and my family will always say Kenny a lot of actors go oh you know I'm sick of talking about that we'll never be sick of it because we owe it everything you know and we prayed hoped you know whatever it is to, to the gods or to Russell Crowe whoever it is that runs this planet that people would in, enjoy it and they did so for that we'll never forget it you know your first car was a Ford we covered that earlier you've driven Fords in movies you mentioned the I think it was an F-150 tabletop in Oddball and the troubles that you that you had with that but you have a, a clear affinity for Holdens what's changed in Australia in, in recent time but there was this period when you and I were growing up whether you were a Holden family or a Holden guy or a Ford guy. What is Shane Jacobson? And am I putting you on the spot by asking you to answer that? Yeah, no, look, I'm absolutely Holden. Um, but I've but I'm a car lover too, and uh, it's you know, you can barrack for your own football team, but it doesn't mean you don't recognise other great players. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, I, I, I did the launch of the... Of when the Mustang got launched in Australia, I did the... At the same time, we did a universal launch of them because it's a Mustang. I mean, it's a Mustang. And there's there's cars that do that, you know what I mean? Like the XP Coupe. I mean, come on. You know, if I, if I wasn't in love with the XP Coupe, I would be a complete imbecile. <laughs> to turn my back on that and go, whatever, I'm a old man toughest car I've, I've, I've said if, if the car out of Mad Max got in the ring <laughs> with, you know with the Shelby out of gone in 60 seconds the XB would wipe its face and it'd smash it to bits you know what I mean it's the toughest car so I, I do I can look at a car like an XB coupe like you know I wouldn't put a pass and end up with a mate of mine's got one around the corner on a block he's got a, you know XB coupe sitting there I look at it and go man that's a good looking car so in fact, in one, in the English version of Top Gear, when us boys went over with them and did the, the Ashes, not in the Australian version, in the English version, me, I turn up in an XB coupe. Um, so there I am as a Holden man sitting in a Ford. But man, what a Ford, you know. As you said just a moment ago, mate, like that thing of, you know, when you're growing up in Australia, Ford or Holden, Jeremy Clarkson has this fantastic story. Because he would always grill me and Piz every time he came here, and so would James May all the time when we were doing these live arena shows. About, they were fascinated by the Ford Holden clear division line down the middle of the road. They couldn't, it, did, it doesn't exist anywhere else on the planet that it's too. Uh, there's other people that love cars, and you know, you go to Italy, they'll love a Ferrari, yeah, but not where a nation is divided squarely and fairly down the middle, Ford or Holden. And that happens on one racetrack, and we all know where we're going with this Bathurst and all that stuff. It's been said a million different ways and a million different times, and for good reason. But he's fascinated by it, bewildered, shocked, confused, because he's, he's travelled the planet. He said there's nothing like it. He can't walk into a stadium anywhere on the planet, and he does this for a job and does live shows, where you go, who he's for? <laughs> Half the room. Who he's holding? Ah! Like, he can go to another country and go, Triumph, uh, Ferrari, uh, and you just get, but you'll get Peugeot, Veda, uh, you know, Rana, uh, Volkswagen, uh, like it'll just, there'll be pockets around the room, but not in Australia. So he, he, he's always been fascinated by it. So now we're going to jump to a story he told me because he kept trying to get to the bottom of it. He has a friend in the UK who's Australian-born but now has relocated his life and his work in England. And he's on and he works for like on the war crimes tribunal. This guy's amazing. This is a, a mind, he's a lawyer, he's all sorts of things, like a, a you know, an astute mind. And and I think quite the aristocrat, you know. And Jeremy knew him and, and he said to him once, because he'd always quiz me and he's 
death about this. He said to him, well, you're Australian. So Jeremy said to him, here's this thing I find fascinating. And this is the guy over in England on the War Crimes Tribunal and many other things he does, quite well-to-do and quite highfalutin. He said, the thing I've noticed about Australians, and I can't, I can't get it out of my mind, it always intrigues me, he said, is the Ford Holden thing. And this guy said to Jeremy, oh, Jeremy, I don't care about all that sort of rubbish. He said, no, but he said, in Australia, he said, it always is, it's Ford or Holden. And he said, yes, but Jeremy, I don't care about that Ford or Holden thing. And Jeremy said, Bathurst, he said, oh, I don't feel that kind of rubbish, I'm not into that sort of thing. And he said, so when you were young, what would have been parked in your driveway or your dad drive? And he said, oh, my dad had a Ford. And he said, so would your dad have got a hold? He said, oh, most no, no, certainly not. <laughs> and Jeremy said, you just did it. Yeah. And he said, what? He said, well, you've just had an opinion. He said, yes, but he wouldn't have had a hold in the driveway. We're a Ford family. <laughs> and he said, you have an opinion. He said, well, so I do. I'd never thought of that. But no, we wouldn't have got a hold. Most certainly not. We were Ford. And he said, there you go. But it was out of the two of them. So it, it is, and, you know, you, you've had the discussion ad nauseum with people with where it's gone now with the loss of manufacturing of Australian cars, you know, Australian cars, mate. It's terrible, and it is. It's like seeing two really healthy people get shot in the forehead right in front of us. Like, it was just... Imagine if, you know, they, they marched out, you know, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger and just shot him in the head right in front of you live on stage. Like, it just... That's that's how it felt to us, you know. And I know for people who aren't car nuts, it doesn't feel like that. But but that is what it is to us, you know. That was our favourite band, you know. Are you are you Rolling Stones or are you the Beatles, you know, or what, whatever you want the analogy to be, you know, Foo Fighters or you too, whatever, you know. And you had your thing, and then they just got shot right in front of us. It's not like we weren't turning up to watch them race. It's not like we weren't turning up to buy them. I know we weren't turning up to buy them in the numbers, and we all. Again, anyone that listens to you know your show, mate, knows we know the story behind this. We know how it happens, and everything else. But it doesn't make it any less sad, you know. But you know, I, I do. I do want to try and make sure we keep singing the chorus that we have to sing now. It's a new song, and it's not our favourite tune. But you know, there's still engineers, as we know. There's people out there, you know. Holden's still doing things, and you know, there's the smarts that are in, you know, in Holden HQ, so to speak, are lending that knowledge and that experience to the, you know, the world car market, and they're doing stuff. And I, I, I don't want them to be looked over because their brilliance is still occurring. But you know, it's great that they've got amazing roadies and road crew and the lighting guy and the sound guys in the background that made that band great still working, but I just miss the band on stage, you know. Not alone, mate, not alone. Let's power through a few things to finish here. Do you do your own stunts on set and are you the guy when there's a car involved that pesters them that you have to drive it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and the stunts thing, they don't like it, but uh, so when we did Top Gear, we did all a lot of our own, well, all of our own driving, really. Um, there was some, some moments where they might have big wide shots or they might have someone go around a corner, you know, but but we were driving, you know, a lot of the time. Um, but in a film, they don't like it for insurance. I, I, I can't even ride my motorbike to set. So I rode one, I had a, I had a, a Victory. Um, I do stuff with Indian and Victory as well. Um, as you know, it's all under that umbrella of Polaris Industries. And I rode a chopper to set um, when we were filming Oddball. And I, I, it was a big, loud piece, you know, 350 mil back tyre. It was mental. And um, uh, a 250 mil back tyre, sorry. And I pull up on set and... Um, I go into the makeup truck and everything else, and the producer turns up, and he'd heard it because he was in a car, I think, and heard it because this thing, you know, pulled rain out of clouds was that loud, and uh, and he said, "Jesus Christ, who wrote that in?" They said, "Shane did," and he said, "No, come on," he said, "But really, who was it?" And they said, "It was Shane," and uh, and he said, "No, he didn't," because <laughs> the insurance gets him quite upset, and he came and knocked. At that point, I'd moved from the makeup thing back into my trailer, 
I know that sounds very flash. When you're in a trailer in Australia, it's normally six by four and it's still got freaking firewood in it, but I had a trailer. And uh, he knocked on the door and I opened the door and I said, there you go, Rich. And he said, uh, please tell me that's not your motorbike sitting out there. And I said, okay, that's not my motorbike sitting out there. <laughs> and he said, is that the truth? And I said, what do you want me to say now? Because your last sentence you asked me to please tell you it wasn't. He said, okay, then I want the truth. And I said that it is. <laughs> it is my motorbike. And he said, you can't ride that. I said, yes, I can. Do you want to watch me? I'm great at it. <laughs> but uh, even then, they, no, they had they paid a guy to come and ride it back home and I had to get driven in a car behind the motorbike. Wow. Yeah, so they, they don't like you doing too many stunts in films, but I do do as many as I'm allowed to, and I do more because I because I love it because I you know I've got a cams license. I'm not the greatest driver, but I've got a cams license and a national rally license, and I've raced in the Australian Rally Championship and had a crack at that and Bathurst and the Toyota 86 and all that stuff. So I like having a steer, you know. And I'm in the Polaris race series and you know I've raced those and rolled them and all that sort of stuff. So I do love having a steer. Molly Taylor reminded me about you rolling the Polaris. We won't go into that. She reckons, you, she reckons you'd incriminate yourself. That's another story. Um, you mentioned the CAMS licence. I reckon the first time you and I met each other was at Calder Park at a round of the Australian Championship. You might have driven in a, an Evo 6 Mitsubishi yeah, was, back yeah, then. Yeah, was, yeah. Rally or circuit racing? Oh, man. That's so that's so cruel. That's like beer and wine. <laughs> Meat and cheese. It's, um... Oh, they're so different. They are... Oh, look, I love them both. Um... When I was a kid, I had to go sideways. When you're on the, you know, on a road, you like to do a burnout on on asphalt and do all that sort of stuff and get it sideways. And then once you get the experience of trying to keep a car under control and getting as quick as it can go and keeping the traction, you know, under your under your ass, that becomes the addiction. So driving neat, you know, smooth is fast. All that stuff, the circuit work is fantastic, and putting together. No, as we know, there's a few people who've put together the perfect lap and the, the, you know, the boys in the main game do it. I know they have a go at themselves, but I think they do it amazing every single lap. And, you know, I can't hold a flame to any of them. And I've been around with them all as we have, and you just go, man, you know, God, what a what a gift. You know, And it's a gift, you know. And I know they work hard at it, but for those that watch them, it's a gift they seem to have been given, and they've worked their ass off to afford that gift um, or, or learn that gift. But... Once you once you put together an okay lap in a car, it feels amazing. I mean, it, you know, so rewarding. It just, you know, for some it's golf, and for us, and then you get you put a perfect lap together, and you do another lap straight after it, and you stuff it up again. Oh shit, you know. Yeah. And every time I've written a bit in a, a book called Revhead about what happens in your head doing a lap, you know. Oh my god, here comes the apex. You know, get it right. I've almost got it right. Oh, hang on, is there a car behind me? Oh, no, no, we're good. I've missed. Oh shit, I've missed the apex. Can't believe I missed that apex. Oh, Shane, don't have that thought because look, look where you are now on the wrong part of the track. It's so busy, but it's so much fun. So that's circuit. And then the opposite, then you do rally and you spend your half, you spend most of it sideways. You've got to go into a corner completely out of control to come out of the corner under control. Like it's just fantastic. Yeah. But, and again, it's different because you don't, I mean, sure, you do your pace notes, but you don't know that track. You don't. I mean, you trust the voice in your ear and you know what a you know, left three is, but, but yeah, but you don't really know it. But, you know, it's, again, it's such an amazing art form. So I'm going to say I love them both for different reasons, but it is, it's beer, it is beer and wine. The answer is I'm drinking both and you can't stop me. Revhead, My Life as a Motoring Tragic, the book's out, but also very recently uh, an audio version was released too, which is just fantastic. Quick final ones. Things that other drivers do that annoy Shane Jacobson. The number one thing, I'm emerging as one that I just, I just I'm not going to say it annoys me, it drives my wife mad, mm-hmm. that people just have to understand that the traffic they're about to come to is 
most likely doing 100. If you match it, if you imagine a zip, <laughs> that's what you can do. The truth is you can merge. <laughs> I'm just giving people a wave. People listening to this know this, but if I can find the sentence that can best explain it and we can tell people, you know, if it was a third world country, a country I'd say don't go to the toilet upstream from where you get your water. And they go, oh, there you go, thanks. I think you've saved half our village from getting sick. Well, the merging thing is... If you are doing roughly the same speed as the traffic you're about to get to, you only need the length of your car plus a few metres front and back to fit in. But the slower you go, the bigger gap you need. And when they turn up doing 20, as you and I know, they need a massive gap to merge, and they won't be able to merge, so they're stuck there. That's the bit of information I'd like to pass on. But the thing that makes me angry and always has, I've I've got all my licences, and I've got a truck, you know, semi and forklift and scissor and boom and all that sort of shit, motorbike, car and whatever. I've got a truck licence too, and I've drive semi driven semis and ridges when people pull out when the, the space in front of a truck that they see as a gap when trucks are trying to pull up is not a gap it's every bit of that distance the truck driver most likely needs and they've planned and cars that keep darting in front of trucks literally you may as well dress as a duck on shooting season and lick the end of a bloke's gun <laughs> Because seriously, the risk you're taking is massive. <laughs> like, because that's the one that does my head in. When I watch people jump in front of a truck that has 50 metres in front of it and they're trying to slow up, and I have said one thing I would love to do is before people get on the road with their licence, just before you hand it to them, you go, come with me, we're just going to jump in a truck and then get them to sit in a truck and try and pull that thing up in 40 metres. Well, when you think you've got 50 and you apply the brakes and then all of a sudden, oh, no, you don't have 50, you've got 45. Oh, another car's jumped in, I've got 40. And have your braking distance decreased without your permission while you're trying to pull you know, 20, 30, however many tonne of truck depending on what's in the back and the thing is people have to know that with a truck with air brakes as the thing's slowing up we have to have to take your foot slowly off the brake because the slower the truck's going the less braking pressure it needs to pull the truck up and you actually it sounds weird but as we're coming towards a car we're coming off the brake it is the weirdest thing. And if they got a chance to experience that, they'd never pull in front of a truck again. That's the thing that doesn't just annoy me, it shits me to bits. <laughs> the Grail car. Do you have it? And if you had an unlimited budget, if you don't have it, what would it be? It's a funny one, that one, because we've mentioned the EH Holden before. For so long, it was the dream car. And it's funny, it was not about money. Cause, and people say to you, you know, it's the Al McPherson... You know, versus Pamela Anderson versus Elizabeth Taylor, you know, depends on what you're into, you know, you're, you're, as far as looks and beauty, you know, is what I'm saying. And for me, the EH was it. And it was in my mind from the age of like eight until I brought it like seven years ago. So that's the thing I wanted. So it wasn't money related. And people do say, you know, is it a good car to drive? No, it's shocking. It's terrible. <laughs> you know, inside, trying to keep... I mean, I've had it, the steering box neatened up now and tightened up a bit, but, you know, trying to keep that straight to mission, you know. Inside looks like you're flipping pizzas, as Pizza would say, you know, <laughs> um, just to keep the thing straight. But the car, you know, your question was the whole, you know, the, un, the untouchable one, what is it? And, uh, for, look, it's Aston Martin. I would feel like too much of a tosser to be in one. But, you know, a vantage... Is probably if if I had money sitting in drawers that I had even I had so much money that I've even forgotten which drawers I'd put them in, and they had hundreds of thousands in them. I'd probably I'd probably you know whether it's the D the DB9 used to be then the Vantage came out, and so I 
I'd probably grab one of those. But see, then then my brain starts going, oh, but, you know, if I did that, I could probably get, like, an XB. <laughs> see, then I start to divide it up and go, I might be able to go out and just get a California mate for ripping around here as a joke and then get an MG because I used to like the sound of him and then I could probably get the XB coupe and then before you know it I go God imagine how many Holdens I could buy with that and then I'm off again I'm going to buy old cars which is how I do it so I'll just buy them all <laughs> that's why I keep making money <laughs> start building that bigger garage mate you've done some incredible things the comedic stuff I know is is close to your heart but outside that genre you're doing some brilliant things as well and even blending charitable initiatives with your love of cars it's been a pleasure to sit and chat with you and we wish you continued success thank you very much thanks mate pleasure as always Rusty's Garage is recorded for Podcast One written and presented by me Greg Rust Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcastone.com.au. Listen to all the episodes of Rusty's Garage at podcastone.com.au via the Podcast One app or find us on iTunes. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely. Drive safely.